The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Open to Exodus chapter 28. Our subject from this Old Testament passage is the high priest and the clothing that he wore as he performed the rituals of worship for Israel. Now for some that might seem like a very, very strange subject, but for those who believe that the Bible has no superfluous parts, we understand that we need to study this passage and all others to discover the reason that God preserved them for now 3,500 years. So once we begin to research the passage we and relate it to New Testament revelation, we, there emerges in it types and figures as a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And anything that we can learn more about Jesus Christ is good for us to do. And so we certainly understand why God would reserve these scriptures. The clothing of the high priest was distinct. It was separate from ordinary clothing of the other priest and the people. And in verse number 2 of this text of Exodus 28, it says, And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother for glory and for beauty. And the key word in that verse is the word holy. These are holy garments, and more than, than anything else, that's what makes them different a different type of clothing. Well, fundamentally, the, the meaning of holy is different. Uh, we often say that holy means to set apart. Of course, it means the same as sanctify. means to set apart. But it's set apart because it is different. It's distinct from others. And without that word holy that's put into the text, this wouldn't be anything different than just somebody's normal clothes or a different type of dress. When the Bible says that God is holy, it means that He is distinct, that He is different from us. And of course, we could go on from there and talk about myriads of ways that God is infinitely different from us. So when we see the word holy in Scripture, we know that whatever is holy must have the character of God. And in this case, holiness refers to the Son of God, who is the second person of the Trinity. He is holy. He's the holy child of Israel. He's the holy anointed one. He is the Messiah. Well, the garments of the priest are another depiction of Christ. And each type of Christ that we've studied shows just uh, another aspect of his nature, of his character, and the work of the holy God. Now, our study is an exploration of typology, and a type is an expression of God that's shown in a symbol. Months ago, we started our study with discussion of uh, sacrifice in Israel's worship system, and those were symbols of Christ's life and of his death, ultimately leading to the many, many multitudes of ways that he accomplished and continues to accomplish redemption for us. So what we're doing is working our way to a final discussion of sacrifices, and that will be about the Day of Atonement. That's the most holy day in Israel. But to understand that, we've got to consider the priest and what he did when he made those sacrifices. All of his activities, the special dress, the symbolisms that are portrayed in them, they all play a key role in the ritual. Well, as we continue the study, we're ready to move on to another part of the priest's clothing. We've discussed the linen undergarments that are 
found in the last part of chapter 28. Those represent the purity of Christ. And we've talked about the belt, uh, the girdle, the sash that went around the priest's waist. That symbolized Christ as a servant. And then thirdly, we talked about the robe of the ephod. And that robe stood for the unceasing work of Christ with its color of blue and the pomegranates and the bells that are on the hem. And that was just a, a marvelous picture of the untiring Christ who never stops working on our behalf. And it is blessed to know that our salvation is secure because Christ never stops his work. Some weeks ago, we had a discussion in the forum class about the difference the difference in the way that the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament and in the New. And the question was about the indwelling of the Spirit. Did the Holy Spirit indwell believers in the Old Testament? Unfortunately, there are many people that don't understand this because their preachers have not taught them to understand it. And so they say the Holy Spirit didn't indwell people in the Old Testament, uh, but he was in and out of believers according to need of the time. And so the Holy Spirit would leave them and then he would come back. But that's not true. Old Testament believers were indwelled by the Holy Spirit because there isn't any power to live daily for God without the Holy Spirit in us. We're sanctified daily by the power of the Holy Spirit. And should the Holy Spirit leave us for even a moment, our salvation would fail. And as soon as the Holy Spirit moved out, Satan would move in. It's important for us to understand who the Holy Spirit is, that He is the Spirit of God, He is the Spirit of Christ, He's Christ living in us. And the robe of the ephod is a picture of that. It's Christ's presence that he always works on our behalf. Even the common clothing of Israel had that blue on it signifying that, that heaven's work was in God's people. So the Old Testament believer needed the Spirit as much as we need him today. The regenerating work of the Holy Spirit was as necessary in the Old Testament as it is today. And so when the Holy Spirit regenerates, which leads us to conversion, He indwells us as the Spirit of Christ. Regeneration, salvation, sanctification, redemption, you find all of those concepts in both Testaments, even though the understanding of them by the believer is different in the Old and the New Testament. That's the difference that we have. The Holy Spirit still in, was still in people, but their understanding of how the Holy Spirit worked, that was different. So a misunderstanding of that truth leads into an error of ultra-dispensationalism, which says that there's a difference in the method of salvation in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And this would be true if the Holy Spirit didn't work in the same way, and if Christ didn't work in the same way, then we would have a difference in the way that salvation comes to us. So if it was true that the Holy Spirit left people, left believers in the Old Testament, then what they would have to do is to be saved by their works. They would have to keep on trying to work out of their own power, their own ability. And of course we know the the Scriptures never teach that. Salvation is the same in both Testaments because the Holy Spirit works the same and, the, and Christ Himself works the same. It's all one salvation. Now, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings about that because you hear it taught differently all of the time, but truth is truth, and it's nonsense to interpret Scripture in a way that says the Holy Spirit could ever leave a believer in Christ, a believer in the one true God. So, if that happened then that, uh, if we could say that's possible, that would mock the power 
of God in salvation, which essentially is what all free will methods of salvation do. That's just a little bit of extra information for you tonight. So it's time for us then to uh, take on our text again and the next part of the priest's clothing. Moses was told to make holy garments for glory and beauty. So look at verses 6 and 7. And they shall make the ephod of gold, a blue and a purple, of scarlet and fine twine linen, with cunning work. It shall have the two shoulder pieces thereof, joined at the two edges thereof, and so shall it be joined together. Tonight we're going to talk about the ephod. What is the ephod, and what is the purpose of the ephod? How does that relate to Jesus Christ? So the ephod, point number four in your outline, stands for the intercessory work of Christ. Christ's intercessory work. But what is this clothing that's called the ephod? Well, there's the robe of the ephod. That's what we discussed last week. The ephod and the robe of the ephod are different. Now, we have our picture once again that we want to show you here. And uh, the, the robe, the robe of the ephod is the blue garment that you see right on top of the white that's the one with the bells and the pomegranates on the hem of it. And then the ephod, see that, that robe with the ephod goes over the inner garments. That, that, that's the blue color, the predominant color of the outfit. Blue's the heavenly color that uh, signifies the priest's work is the work of heaven. It signifies Christ came from heaven. It's God sent from heaven to dwell with us. And the ephod goes over top of the robe of the ephod. It was a seamless garment that slipped over the priest's head. And it had two stones, one on each shoulder, that were sewn in. And they served as a sort of strange button, a button type that would fasten the front to the back to close it. So the ephod that you see is the multicolored, beautiful piece of needlework of colors of blue, purple, and scarlet that's on top of the robe of the ephod. Those colors are used in other parts of the tabernacle, but it's always stated in this same order, blue, purple, and scarlet. The arrangement of the priest's clothing was striking. It grabbed the attention. Uh, we could say that the priest was quite fashionable. The beauty of his garments were unlike anybody, what anybody in Israel wore. Then you have the pure white contrasted with the with the brilliant blue, and then on top of that, the accent piece with this multicolored ephod of blue, purple, and scarlet. So I, I would say that the high priest was more fashionable than Lepha on Sunday mornings, if that's if that's at all possible, if that could happen. So you have these uh, you have these beautiful colors. You have the arrangement of it just put together perfectly, and that made the priest stand out and accomplished God's design that that these clothes are for beauty and glory. And it stands for Christ who is gloriously beautiful, that he is altogether lovely. I was thinking about that, and it reminded me of uh, some of the stories that came out of the fire event in October. And I heard that there were scoundrels who dressed in uh, police uniforms and firemen's clothes so they could gain access to areas where people had been evacuated, had to leave their homes, and they would go into those homes and they would steal from the people. So they, they impersonated first responders so they can steal. Now, in my, my opinion, that's a despicable crime and uh, a crime worthy of death, or at least this, to, 
send them with no clothes to Antarctica or to uh, Siberia or the Gobi Desert or someplace like that, chain their hands and their feet, leave them that way, as I said, with no clothes. But I can assure you of this. There was no one in Israel who would dare impersonate the high priest by wearing clothes like his. Nobody is going to put on robes like the high priest, sneak into the tabernacle, steal all the gold that's in there, because if they did like that, that doesn't work. There we go. If they did that, God would strike them dead in a heartbeat. Fire come down from heaven and consume them, because these are clothes that can only be worn by God's man. But we do know that there are people today who like to dress in high priest clothing. And it might not look exactly like this, but they put on their holy garments and, and they believe that those garments do in fact have special powers. The popes and their, and their garments, the priests, the cardinals and so on, they believe that they have the power and the authority of Christ and so they put on the flowing robes of the priest and God teaches they will be punished in due time. So you see this, this, this uh, in the picture how attention is drawn to the priest in the clothes and, and he's got this multicolored ephod over the robe of the ephod. Now, as I said, this is, here, here's the part we're going to spend most of our time tonight. And that is that this, this robe, or this ephod rather, was, was buttoned at the top. It had two stones at the top, you know, like, like I have buttons that, that close the front of my shirt. The, the ephod was slipped over his head and then these stones served as those buttons to, to close it front and back. Now these aren't ordinary buttons that are sewn into the fabric, but they are two of these stones that are on each shoulder and each one is engraved with six names of the tribes of Israel. Six on one side, six on the other, twelve names for twelve tribes. Now if you look at verses 9 through 14, it describes this. And thou shalt take two onyx stones, and grave on them the names of the children of Israel. Six of their names on one stone, and the other six names of the rest on the other stone, according to their birth. With the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet, shalt thou engrave the two stones with the names of the children of Israel. Thou shalt make them to be set in ouches of gold. And thou shalt put the two stones upon the shoulders of the ephod for stones of memorial unto the children of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord upon his two shoulders for a memorial. And thou shalt make ouches of gold and two chains of pure gold at the ends of wreathen work shalt thou make them and fasten the wreathen chains to the ouches. King James is a little bit hard to understand. You ever notice that? A little, little bit difficult. Uh, it says that these stones are to be set in ouches of gold. What does that mean? We say ouch when we're pinched. So what does he mean, ouches of gold? Well, for this explanation, we need to refer to our jewelers. That would be Jason and Sheila, who I'm sure know the meaning of this. Um, the stones are put into finely designed settings. The ouches are the settings. So if you look at Jason and Sheila's jewelry, you'll find them put in very, very nice settings. The diamonds, the precious stones, and all of that, they're put into a beautiful setting. Well, these are two onyx stones, and I haven't asked Jason and Sheila about this, but I doubt very seriously you work too much with onyx, do you? No, onyx 
is not considered to be a, a precious stone, not to us. In Israel, it may have had a little bit more value than it does to us today. But at least it did give this. There were two very hard stones that allowed the names to be engraved on them. But the alches, that's the setting that they put these stones in, a fine gold setting. And once they were put in their place, they were very, very attractive. So let's, let's discuss um, for a minute these stones and the names that are put on the stones. Now, there's a little fine detail that I think is interesting. It says the names of the children of Israel are put in order according to their birth. Is that a significant statement? This morning in our form class, I, I, I spoke a little bit just for a moment about Arthur Pink. And I said, Arthur Pink was a great typologist, but he could find a type in just about anything. You give him a word, uh, give an idea in the Bible, and he could find a type for it. Uh, but I do think, I'm not sure that we're going we're to call this a type or call it, uh, find a type in every word, but I do think that there's a very interesting reminder with these names and the stones that comes out of Genesis chapter 43. So I want you to turn there for just a minute, and uh, you'll recognize the story. This is when Joseph was made ruler in Egypt, and his brothers came to Egypt to buy food during the famine, and Joseph hadn't yet discovered himself to his brothers when he invited all of them to come to his house for a meal. So they sat down for this meal. If you look at verse number 32 of Genesis 43, And they sat on him, for him, by himself, and for them, by themselves, and for the Egyptians, which did eat with him, by themselves, because the Egyptians might not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. So you have three, three table settings here. You have Joseph by himself, Joseph's brothers by, by themselves, and then you have all the rest of the Egyptians that have another place to sit. And uh, verse 33 says, And they sat before him the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth, and the men marveled one at another. Now, of course, when they sat down to eat, they wouldn't expect that they would be seated in any special order. The man, as far as they knew, that invited them had no idea who they were, had no idea of the order in which they were born. Perhaps Reuben uh, was known, and he was seated first in the uh, dominant or the, the uh, preferred position because being the spokesman, it would be assumed that he was the one that was the firstborn, that had the birthright. And then they already discussed Benjamin, so they knew that he was the youngest. But it's all those that are in between. From Reuben all the way down to Benjamin, every man sat down in the exact order that he was born. Now, if I had 11 siblings, if I was Joseph and I had 11 siblings, siblings I would notice it myself because I, I couldn't remember the order anyway. I look at my 17 grandchildren in San Diego, and I'm always, I'm always asking, which one are you? And... Um, <laughs> You know, when it comes birthday time, I have to have a contact manager. I, you know, I have to look them up that way. I have no idea, it seems like, in what order they're born. But in those days, the birthright was extremely important. Everybody knew about the birthright. They kept the order of the birthright. Now, how that refers to Joseph might be a little bit of stretch, but I do think that we believe, or should, should understand, that Joseph is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, an Old Testament type of him. So the laws of the birthright, these are foundational, and this is law that's upheld in deed and in type. 
So on these two stones then are engraved the names of the children of Israel, and they are in order. On the first is Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, and Naphtali. And then on the second there would be Gad, then Asher, then Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and then Benjamin. Did I get that right? Is that the right order? Did I get the names right? Well, that's a little bit of a question too, isn't it? Because many times in Scripture when you see listings of the uh, names of the children of Israel, the tribes, you don't see Levi. That's because Levi had no land inheritance. Instead, and then you don't see Joseph either. Instead you have the two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, Joseph's sons, and then you put them with the other ten. Of course, then that makes twelve. But that's not most likely what happened in this uh, particular scripture. All the tribes must be represented before the Lord. And so Levi is counted, and Ephraim and Manasseh are considered in Joseph. Then look at the verse, uh, end of verse number 12. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord upon his two shoulders for a memorial. A memorial is a remembrance. The names of God's children are always remembered. So Aaron wore these names on his shoulders when he went into the tabernacle. As he went in, he would pray, uh, uh, go past the brazen altar, and he had the, the names on his shoulders. Go past the brazen laver, the names are on his shoulders. Go into the tabernacle, push the curtain aside. Go beyond past the uh, golden candlestick with names on his shoulder. Go past the table of showbread, names on his shoulder. Go to the altar of incense right before the veil. Put the blood on the horns of that altar and... He has the names on his shoulders. And this is to show us that all of God's people are comprehended in the work of the priest. And when I think about that, you know, that, that's something that really sends shivers up my spine when we think about the doctrinal implications of it all. The rituals that Israel went through is just dripping with this symbolism. I'm almost too anxious to get to it to talk to you about it. And I feel sorry for Christians who, who go to churches that hear the same weak sermons week after week after week on sinners' prayers and sisters' hymn lines. That's all they ever want to preach about. Well, do you ever want to hear something about uh, every now and then about the Almighty God and how in eternity He planned salvation for us and how He remembers each and every name of His children and engraved those names on His holy books? You know, I feel sorry for Christians who who never heard sermons on priesthood and typology and doctrines of Christianity that are, that are intricately connected in all of these details. It's a travesty that most Christians are floating on the surface of Christianity while underneath that surface are these, that surface are these great doctrines of grace. The apostle of grace, Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10, But as it is written... I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Did you know that most pastors preach those verses without understanding the main point that Paul had in mind? This is an interesting comment made by John Gill. I want you to pay close attention to it. He said, in the original text it is, for him that waited for him. Now, in that part, Gill's referring to the phrase, the things which God hath prepared for them. And so he says, in the original text it is, for him that waited for him. The sense is the same, 
For such as hope in the Lord and wait for Him are lovers of Him. And the meaning is that God has prepared and laid up in His own breast, in His counsels and covenant, in the types, shadows, and sacrifices of the old law, in the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament, such doctrines and mysteries of grace as were not so seen, heard, known, and understood by Old Testament prophets and saints, and as reserved for His people under the gospel dispensation. Now, let me ask... If preachers interpreted these verses rightly, that is, that these verses are not about heaven, because that's what you most often get when you hear a sermon on 1 Corinthians 2, 9, and 10, that here he's talking about heaven. But Paul is not talking about heaven at all. And if we understood that he's not talking about heaven, then that would send us to Old Testament rites and rituals, just as we have done in studying the sacrifices of the Old Testament. So what could Paul mean for them except to find the deep things of God in the Old Testament, which is the only place that they have to look. So they miss the meaning of these verses, and so they're looking into the future rather than looking at the past. And so what I could not see was the antitype of the types of the past. So the past is where we find these deep things going back into the law, and then even going further back than that, and that's to the council halls of eternity. Now, there could be, might be, a reference to heaven here, but God has not revealed heaven to us in the same way or in as much detail as we discover Christ when we go into the Old Testament and look through these sacrifices and the priesthood and all of those things that get further explained to us when we get into the New Testament in Romans and Hebrews. So do you want to learn something about engraved stones? Then how about looking at something that comes from the past? We would look at Isaiah 49, verse 16. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. Isn't that a doctrine of grace? That's a metaphor for eternal salvation. My name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And folks, that is a birthright. That is a birthright. That's a recording. It's an individual name whose Writing ensures the eternal salvation that would come to that person in time. But that's not all. My name is also in the palm of the Savior's hands. And he took those names to the cross. That's personal salvation because of a name. So how do people miss Isaiah 49 verse 16 and say, well, there is no individual election of God? Do you believe these are names that have been added after salvation? Do you understand why we banned the singing of the song, A New Name Written Down in Glory? Because there are no new names written down in glory. They're written down before the foundation of the world. So those are very, very old names written down. And it doesn't, it doesn't happen when a person is saved. Salvation comes to a person because that name has been written down. So there's names on the stones of the ephod. They're not added after the priest goes in and sprinkles the blood for atonement. No, they're there. They're already there when sacrifices are made, when he goes into the tabernacle and does all the things that he does, just as the names were written in Christ's hands before he ever went to the cross. So if you get your doctrine right by getting typology right, that'll make an enormous difference in the way that you interpret Scripture. Let me give you two truths in addition to what we've just discussed. These stones go on the shoulders. Why the shoulders? 
Well, first, shoulders represent strength and rule. Broad shoulders in the scriptures are symbols of strength and ruling power. There's an interesting reference to it in Isaiah 22, and this is a scripture we've looked at on two or three other occasions. Uh, And it's the appointment of Eliakim to the position of ruling leadership. Eliakim was a servant of Hezekiah, and he attained his position because of faithfulness. In Isaiah 22, verses 20 and 21, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit thy government into his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. That, to me, is very interesting. I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle. And folks, that is symbolism drawn right out of the passages that we have just been discussing in Exodus. The robe represents a commission of heaven's authority, and the girdle is the strength to do the service. Then verse 22 says, And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder, and he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. The key of the house of David is on his shoulder. Now, you've got to understand things like this to, to get the Bible. How, do, how does this represent Christ as these scriptures intend? Well, Eliakim is a, is a type of Christ who is the ruler in his kingdom. If you'll turn back a few pages to Isaiah 9, this is the uh, familiar text that's often read at Christmas, and we did this past Christmas. Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Keys and the shoulder represent government. That's the ruling strength. The shoulders are strong shoulders. So the the names of the children of Israel are on the shoulders of the high priest as our names are on the shoulders of our great high priest. Now here's another implication of the Isaiah text, and here's one of the reasons that we're futuristic in our interpretation of Bible prophecy. We do believe that there is a literal millennial kingdom that's coming to the earth. Now catch the connection of Isaiah 22 to Revelation 3 verse 7, which you are familiar with because of the study of the church at Philadelphia. And there it says in Revelation 3, verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. That letter is to the good church at Philadelphia. Remember all the sermons about how good that church was. And it follows upon promises that Christ has already made in previous letters that those who are faithful to him are overcomers, that they will rule with power over nations. We will rule with Christ in his kingdom. That's not something that can happen anywhere but upon the earth. That's the only place that we're going to rule like this. So having your name written down, folks, has... Very important implications. The name written down. So the high priest has the name on his shoulders. That's a picture of Christ's strength, of his power, and of his rule. And Israel, in the Old Testament, with this strength and power, is a picture for us of spiritual Israel in the New. We're talking about God's chosen people. And their names are always on him. 
And so they will not fail to appear in the presence of the Father. Then second, secondly and finally, shoulders represent bearing our burdens. Many times you've heard the expression, carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. Now, that's talking about trials and problems of life. Most of the time when you hear that, you're talking about carrying the burden of someone else. And this is what Christ's shoulders are. They're burden-bearing shoulders. Now think of this. Every responsibility, every care, every heartache, every failure, every trial, Christ took all of those to the cross. And he continues to bear all of our burdens after the cross and our salvation. So the high priests went into the sanctuary with names, and there are multiple cares that are represented in those twelve names. That complement stands for all of Israel, and all of them are getting the benefit of the high priestly work. There's none left out because Israel is God's. But as we think on that, we would also want to notice there are no extra names. There are no stones for Moabites and Ammonites. There are no Edomite stones. There are no Hittite stones. And we see very quickly that Joshua was told to go into Canaan, into the land, destroy all of them because their names aren't there. So what does God have to do with them? Now I hate to keep piling this on poor Arminians, but where are they going to go to support their doctrine? Because every type in Scripture pulverizes their doctrine. Atonement. Is made for God's own. And I keep leading you to that water, but you've got to drink it. So I'm not going to belabor that point. You can, you can pick it up in many other sermons. So it's comforting for God's people to know there aren't any burdens that are too big for Him. Remember what 1 Corinthians 10 says. It says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Now there, that's, another, that's another verse that people miss the point. Does God put more burdens on you than you can bear? The answer is yes, he does. Most certainly he does. And you've got to be careful to search the meaning of the verse. There is no burden that you can bear. To put on you the faithfulness of being a Christian on top of everything that you are as a sinful person are burdens impossible for you to bear. You can't do it. So what does the verse mean? Well, Paul's writing to Christians. You bear burdens not because you can bear them, but because you're resting upon the powerful shoulders of Jesus Christ. And so all the weight of those burdens is transitioned to Him. That's the way that you bear all of the burdens, everything of life that comes on you, because you're not actually bearing them. You're on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. You're resting on Him. So does it make sense for us to understand There's, there's, we have nothing to fear. There's no weight that can be put on us that's too great because we stand on Christ. And if you read that whole passage in the context, isn't Christ in the background? You read the verses that are leading up to it, and what do you find? You find Paul's taking an example that flows out of the Old Testament. Listen very carefully to the type. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4. And all did drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock 
was Christ. So the strength that they have is drawn from Christ. So even in the Old Testament, 1,500 years before Christ became incarnate, here we have this type of the rock, gushing water. So we have to make sure that we understand the source of our power. Why do you need Christ? Well, the psalmist told us in Psalm 103, verse 14, For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. The frame is what supports the structure. Our frame does not support anything. It's a pile of dust, according to the psalmist. Christ knows that. So he always supports us with his strong shoulders. Never a trial that he is not there, never a burden he cannot bear, never a sorrow that he doth not share. Moment by moment, I'm under his care. First Peter 5, 7, casting all your care on him, for he careth for you. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is too much for us to face alone. William Brown from the 19th century made this insightful comment about ministers and bearing burdens. And we should be able, I think, to make a connection here of a pastor to the priesthood. Uh, the high priest was, is also a type of the pastor in the church who bears burdens for the congregation. And this is what Brown said, William Brown, there are cares which gospel ministers and other servants of the Lord cannot get quit of. You understand? Cannot get quit of. They can't get rid of them. They, they, can't, they can't stop here. They can't get quit of them by casting them on Jesus Christ. Listen carefully. They can't get quit of them by casting them on Jesus Christ. Oh, he may help them by his grace to bear them, but cannot ease them of the burden. Metaphorically, they have, like the high priest of old, to bear those committed to their trust on their shoulders. Otherwise, they cannot be true shepherds of the flock. The life of a true and faithful uh, pastor is no sinecure. That, that means having minimal duties, minuscule duties. It's one of ease. It's not one of ease. Those who think so are not fit for the office. And if they enter on the ministry, they are sure to dishonor and not to magnify their calling. No occupation calls for more carefulness in counting the cost before choosing it than that of Christian ministry. Now what Brown meant is that Christian ministers can't pass off their burdens by simply telling people, just go to Christ. You just go to Christ as if a minister has no responsibilities to bear. That's not the way that God works to relieve burdens. Instead, what he does is tell me and you to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So we just don't, we just don't pass people off to Christ. He intends that with his help, with us leaning on him, that we are able to bear the burdens of others. We just can't tell them, pass them off to somebody else and say, that's not our responsibility. And that's not just the pastor. The Scriptures teach that you must show the love of Christ, that you must go and you must help and you must be shoulders and you must be hands of Jesus Christ. I was watching a, a news story after the hurricane in Houston, and I related a little bit this, of this at, a, at, a, at another time. But there was a, a group of Christian men who got into a boat and they were floating down the streets of Houston looking uh, uh, for neighborhoods where people were trapped and needed help. And there were families that saw these men coming, floating in the boat, and they cried out to them and said, we've been praying that God would send somebody to help us. 
And so these men said, we are the hands of Christ to help you. On Sunday night, after the fires, I called Jorge. And I said, hey, where are you? What are you doing? And I expected that he was home rubbing Mina's back or something else he was told to do. And, uh, but he said, no, he said, no, I'm, uh, I'm with Christian. And we're up on Piner looking for somebody to help. James 2 says, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? So it's not always good to see somebody in need and say, God bless you. I hope God blesses you. Because when somebody needs help, you may be the very one that God has sent to help them. And you have to know, are you Christ's hands? Are you Christ's shoulders? These are the stones on the shoulders of the ephod on the priest. They picture Christ, God's people that is carried on shoulders, the shoulders of Christ. And so he takes our burdens to God's mercy seat. And that is a powerful picture that we have here of the work of Jesus Christ in our salvation, bearing all of our burdens. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for the message from the Old Testament. Lord, we are required to go back into it, as, as Gil said in his comment, to go back into the Old Testament and dig these things out and find these pictures of Jesus Christ and these things that God has reserved to be learned in the, in the New Testament can't be understood until we go back to these Old Testament passages to find them. Lord, help us to be good students of your word and to take the types and look for the ways that we can, that Christ fulfilled them and the ways that he wants us to have part in that in our understanding and the work that we do. Thank you for Jesus Christ and all the work that he did for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org